Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Am I trying to phrase this? Is there a Bible in Buddhism? People will ask me that. People will ask, is there a Bible in Buddhism? Is there an equivalent to the Bible? And the answer to that is not really, no. Buddhism is really diverse and has texts that are very, very different than each other. So I would not say that Buddhism has something like the Bible. But what I would say is the Dhammapada, it comes about as close as as we can get to uh, something like the Bible for Buddhism. Um, I think it's sort of like... If you're familiar with the Bible at all, um, the Sermon on the Mount is a teaching where Jesus tells everyone, like, how to be a good disciple. And that's what that part is about, and that's it. And the Dhammapada is kind of that way. It is uh, hard advice from the Buddha about how to walk the path. And there's a few things in here that are a little bit into the philosophy, but most of it is just... What do we do? What can we as Buddhist practitioners do to to walk this path and to live more full lives? So, first of all, we're going to talk about um, that title, Dhammapada. Um, Dhamma, it means uh, the truth or the way. It's the same as the Sanskrit term is Dharma. And the Pali term is Dhamma. And I don't want that to be really confusing, but um, a lot of people are familiar with the word Dharma. And Dhamma less so. But the way we've decided to translate things here in the West is, if it's from the Theravada tradition, the earliest Buddhist tradition, from the tradition where the teachings were in Pali, then we say Dhamma. And if it's from the Sanskrit tradition, which a lot more Buddhist texts are from that tradition, then we would say Dharma. And that's, I think that is confusing. I think... It's something we could get stuck on, and I don't want to, but just suffice to say, there's a reason why there's one letter difference. It's because these language, it's a cognate language, so a lot of the words are almost the same. So, um, Dhamma means the way, or the truth, and Pada means path. So, we can call it like the path of, of the truth, or the path of the way, that doesn't make sense, but the path of the truth, or the path... The way, the way for us to walk, I think, is a way to think about it. Um, the point is, this is a list of things the Buddha said to his disciples, and it's, it's, a lot of it is really timeless, and we can pull a lot of meaning from it. The point is to motivate and inspire us, and I connect some, with some of the teachings in here more than others, and we'll talk about that, and we'll see where what teachings each of us connect to. And a lot of it is also pragmatism. And that means um, there's a lot of, if you do this, you're going to see positive results in your life. And if you do this, you're going to see negative results in your life. It's a lot of cause and effect type of things. And that can be, that can be, that's something that really resonates with me. That's something that's really meaningful to me is if it's just, you know, if you're stepping on other people all the time, maybe you're not really going to find the happiness you think you're going to find by doing that. So, 
this text can help us understand Buddhism, uh, going back to the earliest teachings, can help us sort of contextualize everything else. And so this can be this can be really helpful in that way. I like to think of it as uh, Buddhism unplugged. And by that I mean this is from the very beginning and it's before a lot of things got added to the tradition. And that's not to say that adding things to the tradition is bad, but it's just to say that we can see kind of the root from where all of Buddhism comes. We can get a taste of that in this text and in texts like this one. So it's not, it's not to say that adding things is bad because I don't think adding things is bad in the same way that, um, an acoustic guitar is not better than an electric guitar. Really. It's just, it's just, it's just different and it just brings different things to you. So this is sort of Buddhism unplugged and the text has really sort of two distinct goals it presents for us. And one is, we want to have more happiness and well-being in our lives. And these teachings are designed to help us do that. But the second goal is liberation or spiritual enlightenment. So even, I think, even a person who thinks enlightenment isn't real, well, they could still get something. They could still get something out of this because it also is helping us be a little bit happier, be a little bit more content in our lives. And I'm going to read to you um, from the introduction. This is what the, the author, or the translator, slash author, he's, this is what he says about enlightenment, about that second goal. He says, this is the uniquely Buddhist goal. It's a form of spiritual freedom that involves a radical personal change. It consists of a purification often described forcefully in these verses as the elimination or destruction of mental defilements, attachments, and hindrances. And I like, um, we talk about enlightenment sometimes when we talk about Buddhism. And I like that just, we're trying to eliminate our hindrances. I like that way of thinking about it because I think we could uh, think of it as something out there, like completing a level or something. And what we're really trying to do on this path is sort of cut through the things that are holding us back because at our core, at the center of our being, awakening's there. And we just have to get to it by cutting through some of the nonsense we're carrying around. And this, these teachings can help us do that. So... All of that being said, um, this text is so short and easy to read and easy to get through that I think we can just go line by line and passage by passage and I can read it and we can discuss it and see where that takes us. I think we can do that with this text and with a lot of uh, books we could not possibly do that. But this... And if you haven't opened your book at all, like, it's all like this. It is a really, there's a lot of depth to it, but it's really simple. It's like verse writing. So it's really a, a pretty easy thing for us to analyze and recite out loud. So I'm going to turn to chapter one. Um, and I do want to say, uh, 
a lot of this text, uh, especially what we're going to read today, is um, places things in binaries or dichotomies are what, what it's called here. But it's just saying like the virtuous person does this. The bad person does this. The virtuous person's going to be happier. It's a lot of that kind of stuff. So um, it's sometimes it sort of feels like I'm in elementary school because it's things that like everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. It's that, that kind of thing a little bit in some of these. And we'll, we'll go over those and see how it goes. But there's a lot of this and that, which in later Buddhism, um, those kinds of teachings in some traditions are actually frowned upon. Like, you shouldn't separate things in categories. Um, so this, when we're exploring early Buddhism, there's a lot more of that, that kind of teaching. And I honestly, I kind of like it. So I am going to start reading. I'm going to read the first two verses in chapter one, and you can follow along if you're able to. Okay, so chapter one is called Dichotomies, and this is verse one. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. And then you're going to learn as we study this text, there's a lot of repetition. Um, and that's because these were originally memorized by the Buddhist students. They were not written down for some time after. So repetition helps with memory. So that's why there's so much repetition. So the second verse starts the same way the first verse did. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So... I am reminded of the the teaching is that with our thoughts we shape of a lot of our experience more than we think maybe I'm reminded of uh there's this meme that I see around sometimes and it's two guys on a bus and one guy is looking out and he's looking at the sunshine and he's happy and the other guy is looking out and he's he's sad he's feeling depressed and it's just they're looking at the same thing but they're experiencing the world differently. And I think we are, we are that way. I know I've had, in my own experience, this has happened to me a lot of times, actually, where I expect to have a bad day or I expect some experience to be unpleasant, and then I am proven right. And is that because I'm really smart and I'm really good at predicting what experiences I'm going to like? No, I don't think so. I think that I set myself up to have a negative experience. So that is my experience being shaped by my mind. And so if we're held down by our delusions and if we're sort of our baggage is really controlling us, then our mind, I don't know if I'm crazy about that term corrupted, but the point is our mind is not being our friend. Rather, our mind is getting in our way. And what we want is to make friends with our minds so that we can have some, some contentment, some happiness. And that's sort of when people talk about the power of positive thinking. And I know, like, we could use positive thinking unskillfully and maybe 
put ourselves in some kind of um, mental trap. But generally, I think I think positive thinking helps us more than it hurts us. Um, so that is verses one and two. So I'm going to move on to verse three. And this is in quotation marks. Um, and I do want to say, um, the translator mentioned this in the introduction, and I'm going to mention it to you now because it's relevant. Um, he did, the translator did what a lot of people in the modern world do when they translate these old texts. Um, in the original language, there would only be male pronouns in this book. So every time there's a female or a they pronoun, just know he's, he's adapting it to the modern world because we don't always write in he pro pronouns anymore. But in ancient times, like, that was sort of the default. That was how everyone wrote everything at that time, I think. So um, we're about to experience that. So this part is in quotation marks, okay? So this is someone saying this. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 5 and 6 as well. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. Many do not realize we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. So, I am thinking of, gosh, I don't, I didn't know if I should do this, but I'm going to. One of my, I have four kids. Um, one of my kids, in particular, he, um, if he can't find something, he immediately goes to, someone took it, He's, got, he's gotten better, but he used to do that pretty consistently. And we are that way sometimes, of course. And that, you know, if you lost a thing that you want to find, that's one level of uh, unhappiness that's coming at you, right? But if you think somebody took it, that's another level, right? And the truth is, sometimes we just lose things. But um, does this mean that we should just forget about it if someone harms us. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that the message here, though, is maybe we don't hold on to it so tightly. Um, maybe we don't hold on to it so, so tightly. There's a famous Buddhist, Buddhist teacher named Stephen Levine, and he's not alive anymore, but he taught for many years, and he was really good, I think. But he said... And I'll always remember this, this quote from him because he said, you can let someone back into your heart without letting them back into your house. You can let someone back into your heart without letting them back into your house. And what does that mean? Well, it just means we can forgive people that harm us without putting them in a position to harm us again. We can forgive people who harm us. But more than that, Sometimes we're sort of re-harming ourselves if we are holding on to that baggage too tightly. And that hatred, that doesn't help us. That doesn't help us. If anything, it sort of reinforces the negative feelings we have. If we're hanging on to that hatred, if we're thinking about how much we hate someone, 
or how awful what they did to us was. And hatred never ends through hatred. Um, he says by non-hate alone. I've seen this translated as by love alone does hatred end, but that's that's fine. Um, and then many who do not many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this quarrel's end. So I think I realize that we're all gonna die, right? But we don't all the time have that in the forefront of our minds. And of course we don't, because that would be very scary. But uh, the point is, we are going to die. And do we want to spend our time getting caught up in things that don't matter that much? Or do we want to spend our time figuring out how to live the best way we can and take actions to try to live in a better way and to be happier? Of course that's what we want to do, right? Of course that's what we want to do. So we should not be spending a whole lot of time ruminating on things that aren't helping us. And we should not be spending a whole lot of time um, arguing with strangers on Facebook and things like that that we fall into these days. Because we only have so much time, right? And our lives are all going in a certain direction. And... Maybe we could slow that down, but we can't stop it, right? So, I'm reminded of that song, um, Live Like You Were Dying, where the, the narrator in the song, like, he finds out he's going to die, and he goes and he lives, he goes and has adventures, but also, like, he realizes he really wants to be nice to people and things like that. And that's sort of how I feel. Sometimes I feel like in life we, we are sort of, uh, it seems like we're living in a burning building, and instead of working together to save our lives, we are arguing about the furniture in the building or something, right? That's, that's how I feel about this sometimes. So, because life is fleeting, of course we sh should want to better ourselves and to find as much inner peace and joy as we can, because, because we can, because we don't have to get caught up in, in things that don't help us. We don't have to. We think we have to, but we don't have to. Okay, so... Um, verse 7. I really like uh, verse 7 and 8 because I think they're... Um, common sense. I think they're common sense. We'll see the... Whoever lives focused on the pleasant, senses unguarded, immoderate with food, lazy and sluggish, will be overpowered by Mara, as a weak tree is bent in the wind. Whoever lives focused on the unpleasant, senses guarded, moderate with food, faithful and diligent, will not be overpowered by Mara, as a stone mountain is unmoved by wind. Uh, so, first of all, Mara is... Um, I I think of Mara as like a devil figure, um, but Mar Mara is sort of a, a personification of our weaknesses, and we can believe that's a literal being or not, um, but that that's what Mara is. So really we're saying like the personification of your flaws 
are going is your flaws are going to overpower you like a weak tree is bent in the wind or you can be like a mountain right i want to be like a mountain so um but i think that focused on the pleasant focused on the unpleasant um that's not to say that we should be thinking about unpleasant things all the time but rather i i like to think of this as um focused on the unpleasant is just accepting the way things are rather than whereas if we're focused on the pleasant then maybe we're trying to chase pleasure all the time and the truth is uh pleasure has no end you're not going to get enough of it period so it's not where our focus should be it's not going to make us happy really ultimately and so I'm going to go ahead and read 9 and 10 and then um, see if anyone has anything to add. Because 9 and 10 kind of follows a lot of the same lines. Whoever is defiled and devoid of self-control and truth, yet wears the saffron robe, is unworthy of the saffron robe. Whoever has purged the defilements, is self-controlled and truthful, and well-established in virtue, is worthy of the saffron robe. So this is telling us, we can be, a, if we're a good person, we are worthy. The saffron robe, um, the audience the Buddha was speaking to at this time were monks. Um, so when we say wear the saffron robe, he's saying, and I think he was kind of predicting, um, yeah, it's probably been true throughout history, of uh, spiritual teachers who maybe don't live up to the expectations that they say they're going to live up to, right? So, a person could be wear a monk wearing monk's robes and be devoid of self-control and truth. Whereas a person might not be a monk at all. And if they've purged the defilements, if they're self-controlled, if they're truthful and well-established in virtue, then they're, they're the worthy ones. And I think, um, you can insert your own, uh, historical or modern religious leader that you think has sort of stepped away from the path. I'm sure we can all think of some. I'm not going to name any, but I think the Buddha was was predicting that that's a thing in the world that exists is uh people who present themselves as sort of paragons of virtue that that maybe fall short of that song. I think uh we can continue to chase pleasure and give in to temptations all the time and indulge in anger if we want. But I think the message of the Buddha here is that that's not going to make us happy. That's not really even going to take us where we want to go. So um, maybe that's not the thing to do. Maybe we should train in mindfulness and self-control and see, see where that takes us. So I'm going to move on. Um, these next two I feel are kind of clunky. But, here we go. Those who consider the inessential to be essential and see the essential as inessential don't reach the essential, living in the field of wrong intention. Those who know the essential to be essential and the inessential to as inessential reach the essential, living in the field of right intention. That was hard to say. But, um, the point is, we can learn how to focus on the right things. We can learn how to focus on the right things. And we can always ask ourselves, you know, do I want to be sitting here scrolling on my phone or do I want to pay attention to my kids who are right here, right? 
we can always be thinking that. And that's not even um, from a spiritual standpoint. But from a spiritual standpoint, I can always be thinking, oh, I can do my morning meditation or I can skip it and, you know, go get out of here, right? Get out of the house a little faster, right? And that that's sort of making my meditation practice is essential. So I need to always remind myself that it's essential because that keeps me on track. And I'll go ahead and read uh, the next two. As rain penetrates an ill-fashed house, so lust penetrates an uncultivated mind. As rain does not penetrate a well-fashed house, so lust does not penetrate a well-cultivated mind. I just think of the three little pigs. So I think of you know, the straw house and the the brick house, right? And so when our minds are not cultivated, when we're not being mindful and we're not seeing the world around us clearly and we're not paying attention, um, it's really easy for temptations to sway us. And also, it's really easy for people to sell us things too. Really easy for people to sell us things. And you know, and that applies in both the old way that people used to try to sell us things with TV commercials, but it applies in the modern way too, which is where if you search for something on your phone, suddenly ads for it are showing up everywhere. That's, that's the modern way. And if we're not mindful, we're going we're gonna to buy things, right? I, I have irresponsibly bought things before because they were targeted ads and those ads are really good at what they do, right? So that's that's what I think of when I think of when I think of that. Uh, um, he, he, he uses the word lust, but I think we could use lust or greed or sort of any of those sort of things that where we give in to temptation. You know, lust, lust doesn't have to be something sexual. It can also meet I could call it lust when I eat too much ice cream, maybe. When I'm not mindful of how much ice cream I'm eating and I keep eating it. I, I could think of it that way, too. It can be anything where we're not paying attention and suddenly we're overdoing it. Suddenly we're overdoing it. It happens uh, very easily. Very easily. So, um... I will go ahead and go on. One, and this, this, um, we're going to have to talk about rebirth a little bit for this one, I think. One who does evil grieves in this life, grieves in the next, grieves in both worlds. Seeing one's own defiled acts brings grief and affliction. One who makes merit rejoices in this life, rejoices in the next, rejoices in both worlds. Seeing one's own pure acts brings joy and delight. Um, I'm going to read the next two as well. One who does evil is tormented in this life, tormented in the next, is tormented in both worlds. Here he is tormented knowing, I have done evil. Reborn in realms of woe, he is tormented all the more. One who makes merit in this life, I'm sorry, one who makes merit is delighted in this life, delighted in the next, is delighted in both worlds. Here she is delighted knowing, I have made merit. 
Reborn in the realms of bliss, she delights all the more. Now, this is about rebirth, so we've got to talk about rebirth some. It's a Buddhist teaching. The Buddha almost certainly believed in it. Uh, many people in the modern world uh, sort of either believe in it or maybe are skeptical or struggle with believing it. And um, the teaching, the traditional teaching is that you live your life and you, when you die, some aspect of your being enters into a new life in this realm or in another realm. And we don't need to get caught up in that too much, though, because if we were really wanting to take this as a metaphor, I think we could. Um, I've seen in my own life where I am, I have made an excuse to do something that I knew I sh was wrong, that I should not do, and then later, consequences came at me. Could have been predictable that those consequences came. It should have been predictable that those consequences came. But I really wanted to do something that was wrong. So I... Um, put caution to the wind, and I did it, and then those consequences came. And I have um, incidents in my life where I can think of this happening. I think that when we, and I, I'm not crazy about that word evil, because evil makes me think of like something really sinister, and what I think of is selfishness. That's what I think of uh, when when I read these verses. I think of just selfishness, um, stepping on others to get ahead, or giving into temptations when they're hurting people, that sort of thing. Um, and I've, I've seen in my own life where I do something wrong and those consequences come to me. It's, um, and then, of course, sometimes we have guilt about the things we've done. If, if maybe we didn't uh, convince ourselves this thing we're doing is okay, if we didn't convince ourselves well enough, then maybe we even feel some guilt, and you don't want to carry guilt around, of course. So, um, uh, so I'm going to read these last two. Um, One who recites many teachings, but being negligent doesn't act accordingly, like a cowherd counting others' cows, does not attain the benefits of the contemplative life. One who recites but a few teachings, yet lives according to the Dharma, abandoning passion, ill will, and delusion, aware and with mind well freed, not clinging in this life or the next, attains the benefits of the contemplative life. So I think the message here is, this is not um, something to think about, this is not Rather, this is not just something for us to think about or talk about or identify with, but rather, we are called to take action and to work on ourselves and to work on making the world a better place. Um, anybody can read these books and learn these teachings, but you have to actually do things, too. You have to actually do things, too. And I think... Um, in this way, I think the Buddha was predicting my bookshelf because I have a lot of Buddhist books on my bookshelf and I read a lot about Buddhism and I want to get to the point where my, my practice is more than my study. And I'm not there yet, but I'm, try, I'm trying to get there to where um, I spend more time practicing than I do studying because I think practicing is where, is where it's really at.
and for people like me that love to read, um, that's a that's kind of a challenge, but it's something I want to figure out because I want to attain the benefits of the contemplative life, right? So um, that's sort of what I think about when I think about that. Some, um, okay, the original word, uh, I think this is, this is worth noting, actually. The original word that's being translated as vigilance is apamada. Um, and this is sometimes translated as diligence or watchfulness. Um, it's a sort of in energetic mindfulness. It could be translated as attentiveness. So I have seen a version of the Dhammapada where they translate apamada as mindfulness. And that is not, um, I don't like that because there's another word that's mindfulness and it's not apamata. So um, it sort of brings confusion to uh, old Buddhist texts that maybe don't need, don't need confusion. So, uh, vigilance. Vigilance is the path to the deathless. Negligence, the path to death. The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead. Knowing this distinction, vigilant sages rejoice in vigilance, delighting in the field of the noble ones. So, I don't think the Buddha is trying to tell us that we're literally not going to die if we're vigilant. But I think that... Um, the deathless is a word that's sometimes used to express enlightenment, and I don't think it means death's not going to come to us. I think it, what it does mean, though, is that we're going to learn how to live, um, live life more fully. So, uh, there's that expression, you can't add more years to your life, but you can add more life to your years. I think um, that's what I think of here. Vigilance... Um, or this kind of energetic attentiveness, like, this is kind of a way to break through our tendency to function on autopilot. Because we have that tendency sometimes. And by that I mean, um, if you've ever, like, been driving somewhere, and you realize you're there, and you don't really remember the trip, well, that's because you, you weren't attentive. You weren't attentive, you were on autopilot. And... Um, that's, of course, scary for a variety of reasons. Uh, traffic is pretty dangerous if you're not paying attention. But another example of that is when you hear somebody say, like, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my kid is driving. Like, it seems like they were just in diapers. Um, and I sort of feel that way now, now that my, my oldest kid is driving. But, um... That's autopilot. That is missing things because you don't have this kind of vigilance. Is it? And he's describing it as if already dead. And maybe that's a bit much, but I think that's that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. And also, we can rejoice in vigilance, delighting in the field of the noble ones. Um, I think... Some people see Buddhism as a very, like, a negative path, like a negative worldview. And here the Buddha is talking about rejoicing. 
being delighted, and that is, um, I think this path is something we can get excited about. We don't, we don't usually think of it that way, but I think it is something we can get excited about. I'm going to strive for enlightenment. I'm going to live in a more full way, right? That's something worth rejoicing and celebrating, and I think we just, we just don't, we don't think of it that way, though. But we could. We could. Um, so does anybody have anything they want to say about those first two verses? That's okay. Okay, so... Um, absorbed in meditation, persevering, always steadfast, the wise touch nirvana, the ultimate rest from toil. Um, glory grows for a person who is energetic and mindful, pure and considerate in action, restrained and vigilant, and who lives the Dharma. So that is uh, like a list of seven things we can try to do. And, oh, and the next verse is going to be another list. Through effort, vigilance, restraint, and self-control, the wise person can become an island no flood will overwhelm. So I think these are um, wonderful things for us to cultivate. Um, energy, mindfulness, purity, Consideration, restraint, vigilance, effort, vigilance again, restraint again, and self-control um, can become an island. No flood will overwhelm. I'm not sure about what island means here. Uh, besides just like, I don't need to hold on to anything. I can, I can be fully present with whatever's happening. I don't need a crutch. I like a crutch. Like having a crutch or not having a crutch. So these are good, good things for us to cultivate. These are tools in our mental toolbox. And um, the flood, I don't think it's a literal flood. I think it represents uh, our negative thoughts and feelings that can carry us away our negative thoughts and feelings that can carry us away. Um, I heard someone once use this term, and it, the term was brain weasels, which uh, I thought sounded really silly when I first heard it, but that's um, that voice in your head that's telling you things are going to go wrong, or that's telling you everything that's wrong all the time. Um, and we all have that, of course. And that's... The Buddha is describing that as a flood, like that is going to carry you away, carry you out to sea if you're not careful, right? I really like that kind of uh, metaphor for that, because that's how it feels sometimes. That's how it feels sometimes. So, um, I will go on. Unwise, foolish people give themselves over to negligence. The wise protect vigilance as the greatest treasure. 
Don't give yourself to negligence. Don't devote yourself to sensual pleasure. Vigilant and absorbed in meditation, one attains abundant happiness. Driving away negligence with vigilance, ascending the tower of insight and free of sorrow, a sage observes the sorrowing masses as someone standing on a mountain observes fools on the ground below. Vigilant among the negligent, wide awake among the sleeping, the wise one advances like a swift horse leaving a weak one behind. So, um, we're talking about vigilant, negligence as the opposite of vigilance, right? And it's just not being attentive versus being attentive, I think. And wide awake among the sleeping. So, I think of, uh, This quote, and I don't know who said this, but I see this quote get shared, and it says, um, Don't allow others to pull you into their storm. Pull them into your peace instead. And that I'm sort of thinking about that just because of this wide awake among the sleeping, vigilant among the negligent. Like, I want to maintain my vigilance even if the people around me are not doing that. Right? And I want to, maybe I'll be a good influence on them, or maybe I won't, but I don't want them to be a bad influence on me, right? So, that's what I think of with vigilant among the negligent. So, uh, with vigilance, Indra became the greatest of the gods. The gods praise vigilance, forever rejecting negligence. So, a god, what? Right? Um, this is what we would call a Hindu god. Uh, Hinduism did not exist at the time of the Buddha. It was still taking shape, but that um, in Hinduism, Indra is a high-level god. And the Buddha was using the story of Indra to talk to his audience. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily that the Buddha believed Indra was a literal being, but more importantly, it doesn't mean we need to either. Rather, that's a story... Uh, from that time and place that everybody would know. Vigilance was the trait of Indra, and Indra is a great and mighty god. So, in the same way, um, you know, with his great compassion, Jesus died for our sins. Something like that. If this was a chapter on compassion, that would be relevant. That would be relevant. That would be the same kind of message. Like, it's a story everyone's familiar with. It's not necessarily... That the Buddha is saying, oh, you can become a god. He's not saying that. But rather, it's a really great trait to have. And it's not a trait we think about that much. Maybe. The monastic who delights in vigilance and fears negligence advances like a fire, burning fetters, subtle and gross. The monastic who delights in vigilance, who... Delights in vigilance and fears negligence is incapable of backsliding and is quite close to nirvana. So. Thank you for listening and have a good day.